Well, I am so excited this morning to be able to uh, continue and really this last in the series of Journey with Joy, but to be able to journey with uh, like what I consider being one of my best friends who um, I've known for quite some time. You have as a congregation, and if you're new with us, um, hopefully you can begin to get in on it or even look back a little bit and see what this journey has been like. It's been through a book of Exodus. It started way a long time ago, but we're in this place where they've been in the wilderness and and, and one of the things I think that God is trying to do is move them from mindsets or victim kind of mindsets to a place where they realize they do have a will, they have power, and with God, they can really change things. And he's trying to lead them into that place so they can live with a sense of joy. And I'm so excited to have John, my uh, buddy here with us, to share with us uh, some of his wisdom, understanding around this. And uh, we've journeyed uh, quite a while together. Um, I, we go back to middle school, high school uh, in Rockford, Illinois, and then we were um, roommates, uh, kind of housemates at our college in Wheaton. And then from there, the last 20 years, um, these past 20 years, we've been meeting together for a four-day weekend once a year. And that's been kind of a great experience, a lot of joy. And it's kind of a holy thing. I, and your thoughts on that, um, especially being connected with someone in journey for a long time. Yeah, Um I look forward to talking a lot about uh, that word holy. Uh, we all have this sense that there are uh, elements of life that are sacred and that all of life ought to be sacred. And we don't have other language for that. Nothing else kind of captures the depth and mystery of it. And our relationship is in that category for everybody at Wyzetta. You should know I have known Kevin David Meyer since he was in the eighth grade. <laughs> and uh, uh, he was at a free church. His dad was a pastor back in Rockville, Illinois, where I grew up. Let's be careful and, with stories um, here. Let's be careful uh, with stories. Oh, I'm just getting started. Oh, oh, I, okay. Believe me, I'll be very careful. Doesn't necessarily mean what you want it to mean, but I will be very careful. Uh, then we both went to Wheaton College, and that's where our friendship really developed. And in very significant ways, my uh, first year at Wheaton uh, was a really lonely year. I was there. My sister was there, Barbie, Kevin, you might remember. And so mm-hmm. that was a good thing. But I didn't really uh, make other uh, any other good friends that year. And so I felt quite lonely. And towards the end of that year, uh, I asked Kevin if I could room with him. He had been on my same floor our freshman year. And uh, so we knew some mutual people. And it was a little bit uh, presumptuous on my part. Kevin was already going to room with uh, another guy named Jerry. And Kevin said, yep, you can do that. And because of that, the door opened up to a friendship together with the two of us and then to a circle of other friends, uh, some of those friendships which go on to this day uh, 40 years later. Uh, But um, Kevin, uh, uh, who has a great gift for friendship and for intimacy, uh, opened a door for me into community that really did change my life. And so that was holy, uh, not just because of our friendship, although that too, but also because uh, it helped me step into a circle of friends that just went on and helped me understand friendship better and gain a great taste for it. Um, so you never know when you decide to include somebody what that will do. Often when we think about holiness, we think of uh, exclusion and being separate, and we'll get into that. Uh, but really, it's for the purpose of inclusion and joining together. And there was so much joy. There was so much laughter. There were so many deep conversations about God. I learned so much. Uh, one of the reasons that I loved rooming with Kevin was that he attracted women so easily that I just would go after the rejects and the discards. Oh, okay. And so okay, my dating that, life was much richer that's than it would have been. Plenty, 
plenty on, on your end there. They don't need to say anything more, and you go. You're just uh, making fun right now. Anyway, um, I have in an Exodus chapter 19. I'll bring us back to uh, that passage, and we looked last week at verses one through eight. Just this idea that we are treasured possession, people that God brought out. He says on eagles' wings, and now He brings them to his very presence, and he's right there with all the people at the edge of the mountain in Exodus chapter 19, specifically in verses 9 through uh, 25. And so I wanted to kind of just break that down a little bit, because as you get right into the text, they're there, they're waiting. Um, This is what the whole trip has been about, is to come and to worship this God. Moses has been moving into this place where he's with them. And then you have what we call uh, a theological word, a theophany. Um, God makes an appearance. You've done some, you had some training, obviously, in this. What does theophany mean, John? What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, it's a very, very powerful uh, word. Uh, And the idea is uh, that God, who is always present, there is no place where God is not, um, but he chooses to make his uh, his presence manifest or known or... um, uh, uh, visible or audible in some way to people. Yeah. In a way where we, uh, it almost overwhelms our, our own senses and, and, and because he's so incredibly different and other than us. And, and so, yeah, you know, the, 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 the uh, uh, Dallas Willard used to say that the primary theme of the Bible is the offer of the with God life hmm. and that it's centered primarily in Jesus. But when you think about just, the centrality of the temple or the tabernacle initially in the Old Testament. What is that about? Well, in the ancient world, generally the idea is the temple for any uh, country, tribe, religion, was the place where their God would dwell in their midst. And so the, the really the core idea of the Bible is uh, that God wants to be with people. God wants to be with you. God wants to be with me. And that makes our lives and our days holy. Um, but we are cut off from the presence of God, and so he has to go to extraordinarily le- extraordinary lengths to make his presence known or felt, and that's that little word, theophany. Right, right. So I'm going to read that text real quickly. It says, so Moses went down to the people. So Moses has been going up and down the mountain. God says, come up, go back down, come up, tell them this. one." So Moses went down to the people. He consecrated them for worship, and they washed their clothes. He told them, get ready for the third day until then abstain from having sexual intercourse. On the morning of the third day, thunder roared and lightning flashed and a dense cloud came down on the mountain. There was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn and all the people trembled. Moses led them out from the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. They didn't want to go any closer. They said, Moses, you do this. They were so afraid. And it says in verse 18, all of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended from on it in the form of fire. Smoke billed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln, and the whole mountain shook violently. At the last, at the blast of the ram's horn, as it grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God thundered his reply. And the Lord came down on the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses climbed again to the top of the mountain. And, and, and you have these words like thunder, or this overwhelming sound, lightning, and in this bright, dazzling sight, uh, thick clouds that are weighty, heavy, and glorious, fire, this intense purity, um, billowing smokes like a furnace where there's this mystery that 
you can't know all of God. God would love to reveal himself, but how can finite minds take it in? A loud trumpet, which catches our attention, kind of like here comes the judge, or you think of um, uh, 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 Caleb to the chief. There's this loud blast that says he's coming. Um, and Moses, I think, tries to describe the indescribable. You know, a lot of people try and make these natural things. It could, we just don't know, but we do know that what Moses is trying to do is to tell us this is something just so indescribable. This is the awesome, holy other God. And I used to think about holy only about moral goodness, and it isn't. Mm-hmm. Any, any thoughts on this otherness of God? Um, well, yeah, let's start with that notion of holy and otherness, and then I think coming back to God's presence with us uh, will be important. Um, a lot of times when we see imagery like that, it's so overwhelming that it feels like, I don't know that I'd want to be around that being. <laughs> it just feels destructive. And I think to, to be aware that uh, God is other and his power is great. A lot of these images have to do with power, lightning and thundering, uh, a mighty wind. And so, and of course, Israel has been under the yoke, under the thumb of great power with Pharaoh. So God needs for them to know they are now coming under an infinitely greater power. You do not need to worry about Pharaoh anymore. Yeah. Um, so it is great power. Um, uh, God is, God is uh, uh, fearful to us, but God is not mean. And I think sometimes when people read imagery like that, and of course we see that with the people in Moses' day, uh, when uh, these kind of pictures or expressions or revelations of God's presence and power were there. People's initial response was, uh, we don't want to get too close. And uh, that's not God's intent. God wants us to desire to be close. Perfect love casts out fear, John says. But it's going to take a while for us to come to grips with the fact that there is a being who holds all power in his hands uh, and who is all good, and we are not all good. And uh, yet uh, he wants to be with us. And that's going to take some time to work through. Well, that's a great point. So let's just kind of hold on it just for a second, because you have this power that they've always seen manifest in Pharaoh, which is everything but good. You can put it that way. Right. All self-serving. It's, it's what power we see today uh, so often is it's not used. Like Jesus said, we don't, we're, we don't, um, seek to be first, we seek to serve. It's what do we do with our power? How do we use our power? And so here is this God who displays himself with this incredible power and tells him in the moment, he says, he warns him not to come close. But what I think is really interesting about holy is the otherness that I didn't quite understand is the otherness that we don't even grasp is his grace and his humility and his, his forgiveness and his goodness and all the aspects of that, that is balanced with this incredible power that is good. And, uh, that's the otherness I sometimes think of. Like when I think of holy, he goes, it's not like any power structure I know. Yeah, um, and it's the opposite of Pharaoh's, you know, in our day, we'll talk about uh, servant leaders who use an inverted pyramid structure. Well, Pharaoh didn't use inverted pyramids. Pharaoh invented the pyramid. Like he, and, <laughs> and the pyramid was all about him. And the slaves were just drones that built the pyramid. So God is going to invert the pyramid and that is the goodness of God. And, and one of the most wonderful passages in uh, the Exodus story is when Moses is uh, negotiating with God because of God's uh, frustration with the people of Israel. And, and Moses says, now, if we're going to go from here, uh, you must go with us. Uh, who will we be without your presence? And God says, all right, I will go. 
And then, and then Moses makes one request for himself, and he asks of God, now show me your glory. Mm-hmm. And God says, I will cause all my glory to pass before you. And uh, I would tend to think, we would tend to think of thunder, lightning, thick clouds, fire, manifestations of great power. But what the text says is, God caused all his goodness to pass before Moses. Mm-hmm. In other words, what is most glorious about God isn't his naked power. Anybody can have great power. Uh, it is the goodness of his character. And that starts to move us towards the nature of holiness. Yeah. So if you go into the next few verses, because he, he makes it very clear, this theophany, and there's this holiness, this holy otherness, which we just talked about. There's also then a warning if you look at verses 20 through 25. And I'm not going to read through all the verses. I'm just going to share with you that it says that Moses goes down a second time because God tells him to do that. Uh, and you think about it, he's 80, so he's going up and down this mountain. And, and, and he must have been pretty good shape. shape. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and he warns the people again. He's already warned them in verses 10 through 13. But now in verse 21, he says, don't force your way to see the Lord. In verse 22, he says, even the priest, which you would think the real spiritual group maybe could get a, a bit closer, he warns them and says, take precautions in case God just breaks out against you. It's this idea of a, a wall where um, water breaks through. Um, and then in 1923, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. Uh, not sure they had it then, but I would imagine if they did, they would have put kind of that, um, that, that what I would call that barricade tape that says, um, danger, do not enter all around there, that orange tape. Um, something was probably put up that said, don't go past this point. What, what's all the, uh, this warning about? What, what, how do you understand that? Yeah, um, you know, going back to that notion of holiness uh, and that at its core, the idea is that it's otherness or, or separateness. Uh, guy Neil Planiga has a wonderful passage in uh, uh, his book on sin called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And he says, if you go back and look at Genesis, basically what God does at creation is um, God separates. He separates the light from the darkness. He separates the waters from the dry lands. He separates the day from the night. Um, God separates, and then God joins together. And what God is doing then is to make everything functional. He is moving from a state of chaos where things are not um, flourishing, uh, where they're not useful, uh, and creating ordered systems of beauty. And uh, he does that by separating and then joining together. And so that's where that idea of separating or holiness comes from. It's not arbitrary. It's not exclusive. It's not exclusionary in heart. Uh, it's not severe. It's actually functional. It's actually about shalom. It's actually taking chaos and making it uh, to flourish and to be good. And uh, that's what that notion of being separate is. So one way of thinking about sin is uh, sin is separating what God has joined together and joining what God has separated. Mm-hmm. And uh, so if you think then about the man and the woman, uh, part of the statement that Jesus makes about them is what God has joined together, let no one separate, let no one put asunder when there is a relationship where two people have made a commitment to bind each other, to be committed to each other, and then they sever that. There's a breakage and a damage, and it hurts. And it's that kind of training, learning that God has vested creation with meaning and with goodness. 
uh, and that we are to honor that. Uh, we don't get to make up values willy-nilly. We don't get to decide just on our personal preference, this is good and this is bad. Good and bad are woven into the nature of creation. And uh, there are boundaries beyond which I am not to go. Uh, okay. I am not to uh, violate the sexual integrity of this body. And we've seen in our generation uh, when particularly men do not honor that and they violate, uh, the, they abuse the integrity or the, the uh, sexual boundaries that ought not to be abused. The massive damage that that does or when parents do that with children or when people that have privilege do that to people who don't have, have privilege uh, that's when the horror, evil, violence of sin enters into the world. Uh, so, so that notion of boundaries is critically important. Okay, so we have been experiencing racial divide in a way we've never experienced before. And yep. I not really prep you for this, but I wouldn't mind even saying, what does that mean? Like this boundary, holy sin, I mean, people are trying to create boundaries in some ways and I don't know if that question makes sense to you, but sin is obviously involved in that. What, what's your thoughts on that? Um, so I'll tell you one more story about something that's holy. And Kevin, you won't okay. like me telling it, but it just helps to illustrate it. When and Kevin and I were we're gonna have together, to, are we going to have to edit when it? Kevin, when <laughs> Kevin and I were rooming together, uh, one Sunday morning, there was a phone call that came almost in the middle <laughs> of the night. And we had one other roommate. We were all sound asleep and, Kevin answers the phone, and all I could hear him is he's talking to his brother. He said, I don't have it. Keep, I don't, I'm telling you, I don't have it. And he hangs up. We all go back to sleep. An hour later, it's still crack of dawn. Phone rings again. Keith, I'm telling you, I told you before, I don't have it. I haven't got it. I haven't seen it. <laughs> and I figured uh, Keith had lost his car keys, got stranded in the middle of nowhere. Something terrible had happened. Eventually, I find out. It was a hairbrush. <laughs> Keith could not find his hairbrush. And he called from about an hour away to our dorm room because he was certain that Kevin had. Now, that was a holy hairbrush. See? That was a hairbrush that had been set apart. It was sacred for the use of Keith. And for Kevin to use it would have been to defile it to make it unclean. So that's what is holy uh, has been set apart. It has been made separate. Uh, there is a use for it. Now, again, if you go back to that uh, creation story, the point is everything has a use. Everything uh, has been ordained by God to be appropriately uh, separated and then joined together. Interestingly, when a little baby is born, obviously a baby starts as a, you know, one cell joining another cell, and then as those cells multiply, they differentiate, and uh, billions of them become neurons. But then they integrate, they join together, neurons that wire to get fire together, wire together, and that's what enables a human being to flourish. The birth of every human being kind of reenacts creation itself, where God separates and then joins together. Now, God creates human beings, and uh, they are separate, a man and a woman, two different genders, and yet God joins them together so that in their separateness they are joined together a little tiny bit like within the Godhead, uh, there is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons, and yet they experience oneness. God creates human beings in God's image, male, female, black, white, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, but in Christ, we are to be joined together. We are to be made one. 
We are to be of one mind, of one spirit. We are to invert the pyramid. I'm to put your interest above myself. And in particular, people who have privilege or people who have power are to be like Jesus, who in that great Philippians 2 chapter did not consider his position being equal with God something to be used to his own advantage, but poured himself out. Now, when we create boundaries, when we try to separate what God has joined together, a lot of people talk about racism as the original sin of America and to have said from the beginning that we would kidnap a race from Africa and dehumanize them, count them as three-fifths of a person in our constitution and own them as slaves. What were we doing? We were blaspheming God. We were making separate what God had joined together, humanity that was all declared to bear the image of Christ. And that's why racism is so heinous to the heart of God and so destructive to society. And so we as followers of Jesus are to um, join together again what what human beings in sin have separated. That's that's really helpful. Thank you. And and as you kind of just to, you know, the person out there saying, okay, so what does this mean about my sin in Jesus? What was it that happened there at the cross that made such a huge change around holiness? Yeah. So uh, what holiness, what sin does is to separate what God has joined together. And that's why we have such a fractured experience internally and in our world. Sin disintegrates. Uh, We were made to be integrated uh, as persons, uh, mind and body and will, and then as a society in families and so, and then together with God, connected with God, united with God, with God. Sin disintegrates all of that, and we can't put it together again. We cannot reintegrate. So Jesus comes, and the ultimate expression of this is on the cross, somehow in a way that none of us can fully understand, he takes our sin, our, our hatred, our injustice, our violence, uh, fully on himself, and continues to love, and continues to offer forgive, forgiveness, And when sin and violence have done their worst and killed him, love remains. So love triumphs over sin, hatred, and violence. And that's the triumph of the cross. Paul says he was disarming the powers and authorities on the cross. So that now in him, we can be united again to God. God, through Jesus, in the cross, was again joining what sin had separated. That is, us to God. And then in the body of Christ, us together with each other. So as we look at this and this joining together that God brings about, and I could go a whole lot of directions, and we don't have with that with time, but I just think of the fact that until we identify and understand that our own heart, let's just say for racism, there's a systemic, there's a racism. Until we come to grips with that, this isn't about someone out here. This is about what I need to get a hold of in here so God can bring this new heart into me. That's really often what we talk about in the sense of salvation. Jesus did this work so that he could begin to implant through us a heart that would allow for us to be fully integrated with him and others. But it still calls for us to, um, to in humility, walk this out and, and express it. Yeah, and I think uh, you know, racism is particularly powerful because in our culture right now, uh, just generally, the word sin often is not used a lot. Um, but racism has become kind of the ultimate sin. 
And uh, it's real good thing that it's being called out. It's tragic that it hasn't been eliminated. But one of the difficulties is uh, because it is such a shameful thing, a lot of us have a hard time acknowledging, yep, there is racism in me. Mm-hmm. And uh, part of what we believe as followers of Jesus is uh, that we are sinful people. Uh, if anyone says they do not sin, they are a liar and God is not in them. And so there is sexual sin inside of me. There is greed inside me. There is deceit inside me. It would be very strange if there were not racism inside of me. It would be very strange if I had no sense of privilege or there was never a time when there was uh, bias or prejudice or stereotyping at work in me. So if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, uh, I have to be serious about saying, God, I want you to show me where do I need to repent? Where do I just assume privilege? Where do I not listen? Where do I not want to turn on my television set and look at a riot going on someplace and be bothered by that because it makes me feel bad or it disturbs my serenity and I'd rather just be comfortable in my little world? Where do I need to become a student? Where do I need to learn? Uh, that's the place where we begin. Yeah. So I'm going to take us into this last part of this passage. It's 23 through 25, but I'm specifically 23 at one point he makes a statement, and I'll just read it. He says, the Lord, uh, but Lord Moses protested um, after he said, I'll break out and destroy them. The people cannot come to the Mount Sinai. You already warned us. You told me. Mark off a boundary around the mountain. Set it apart as holy, which is this idea that what God touches becomes holy. I mean, it, it burns out whatever's there. If we allow God to touch us with his holy presence, and we want his holy presence, it burns that, in a sense, out, and he touches what's holy. Um, again, we can go different places, but one of the things I wanted to just ask you, because I've heard you talk about this before, there's a sense that people think, well, if you die someday, you know, God's, why isn't he going to just let everybody into his presence? Why doesn't, you know, if he's this holy God, if God, he's forgiving and loving, why doesn't just, you know, so it, it's almost a sense of, um, he, you know, he's got to accept us. What's, what's your thoughts yeah. on that kind of a, idea and holiness. Yeah, Kevin, I think that does get back to people uh, misreading a passage like this with the fire and the smoke and the thunder and the people being afraid. So they were afraid back then. They were afraid to approach God. And uh, we're afraid that God is mean. And uh, we think we're afraid or very often this idea uh, is that um, God uh, wants to exclude people. Or if God was just nicer he would let everybody into heaven. And uh, I think the problem there is a lot of people have not given much thought to what will heaven be like. Mm-hmm. And in our day, a lot of times we just live in this cartoon picture that heaven is clouds and harps uh, or just the pleasure factory. And of course, if you could just get into heaven, you would be at the pleasure factory and hell is the torture chamber. So why doesn't God just let everybody into the pleasure factory? But um, uh, the writers of scripture are really clear on this. Mostly heaven is characterized by the presence of God. Heaven is a place where God will be very difficult to avoid. Uh, it will be real hard to find a little corner of heaven where God isn't. Um, but now there's serious implications around that. It's like, even in our day, uh, if if I wanted to engage in some kind of sexual sin, I would not want my mom to be watching. If my mom was watching, <laughs> that would take all the fun out of it. I'd want to go someplace where my mom was not. 
So do I want to live where my mom is watching me every second? And that just raises this question most of us don't think much about. Do I really want to live uh, a life that I would uh, be willing to live if God were watching me every second? So I have to put aside uh, uh, any option of sexual sin, lust, deceit, self-promotion, non-servanthood, uh, uh, greed, uh, uh, and basically, that's why. Basically, everything that separates us from God, everything that isn't yeah, in, yeah. that cause that separation. Not that he doesn't love us, even with the sin in us. What he's doing is he's removing that. He's removed in Jesus. It's done. But we're- a, a friend of mine, a friend of mine, used to say, uh, "I'm quite certain God will allow everybody into heaven who can possibly stand it." Yeah, yeah. And I think for anybody, once you start thinking about that, of course, if God is a loving Father who cares about all of His children, I mean, I, I, I have children. Uh, if God loves every human being at least as much as I love mine, what else could you say about God? How could that not be true of God? God will allow everyone into heaven who can possibly stand it. The problem is we couldn't stand it. The problem is on our own, in our unholiness, in our ego, and our, you know, I want to make it to the top of the pyramid. I want my people to be on top. I want what I want. Uh, none of us would be able to stand living in the presence of God all the time. So the challenge, in a sense, from God's perspective is, how does he help us be able to stand it? So it's, it, it's not, sense, why doesn't he let more in? Right. So in a sense, to say, you know what, I want to be in a part of God's will, which is overwhelming and, and much greater, but it, it enlivens us if we are in it. If I come in and say, I'm not going to give up my will and my ambition or my whatever it is that's separate from him, there's no way you can be conjoined in that sense. I mean, it, it, no, the, yeah, it really, you know, the foundational response to God, and we started to get into this earlier, and I thought it was so, so good. The foundational response to God always is surrender. Right. Not my will, but your will be done. The problem in the first place was the refusal to surrender. Nope, the fruit looks pretty good to me. Think I'll take a bite. Think yeah. I'd like to be God. And, uh, and the way back to God uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. It, it's, uh, it is lack of surrender that separates us from him, and it is authentic, sincere, Holy Spirit-powered surrender that unites us back to him. Into his will, which is into holiness, which is the last thing I want to ask you, and that is how in the world then do when we think of holy and joy mixed together when we think about journeying with joy. It, it, most of the time, the church has not looked really very happy. Um, a lot, <laughs> it's far from what you would think of, like, who wants to, I mean, who wants to spend time with God? He's just not a happy guy. Yeah. Uh, 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 you know, part of what you see so often, uh, especially in Paul, uh, Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Uh, to rejoice is actually a command in the Bible. And joylessness is a sin. It's a quite serious sin. And it may keep more people out of the kingdom or a relationship with Jesus than just about any other joy. Uh, and um, uh, to know God, uh, the real God, the true God, is to know joy. Joy is a pervasive sense of well-being. Um, but to be a disciple means that I'll have to learn to train for joy. 
And uh, that's where if my definition of holiness is severe exclusionary uh, distancing behavior, uh, then I will never be able to love God. Uh, no, holiness is uh, God's action to separate what needs to be separated and join what needs to be joined for the purpose of flourishing and joy. Then, then I will understand uh, it's impossible to be holy and not joyful. I don't know why in the church, Kevin, you and I grew up in the church so often. Uh, if we think of a joyful person, we might not think of a holy person or yeah. vice versa. Yeah. But actually, you can't be one without being the other. Well, so thank you for, you know, if we're at the the, the mountain, we're going to move into a new series called um, Free to Love, where we go into the Ten Commandments and all those commandments and how commandments allow us to be truly loving people. Um, but what I love of what you said here is you gave us this perspective of when you come to the presence of God, that whole idea of separating and joining together, God has separated us from our sin through Jesus. He's joined us together with him. And in that is what you said. Um, we are there now. We walk in that identity, but the training is so important. Training for joy. What does it look like to become a joyful person? What does it mean? Part of that is just being thankful and all the different things that the word of God shares with us. So I just want to thank you for spending this time with us, John. It's, um, I know um, our church and those who are going to be on live stream and other venues are going to be grateful for having an opportunity to see this and or listen to it. Um, I do want to say that uh, you, you did know that we will be editing a lot of that stuff that was in there that I know is not appropriate out. So uh, I'm glad that I have the last say. <laughs> My lawyers will be in touch with your lawyers. Yes, they will. Anyway, would you just say a short prayer uh, for us, and, and then we'll kind of head out? I would love to do that. And as you're watching, uh, you know, sometimes when we pray, we do it with our eyes closed. Uh, but uh, in the Bible, most often people prayed with their eyes open. Yeah. And it can be a wonderful way to pray uh, as a reminder that God is always present and that uh, theophany is always a possibility. And so I'm going to do that now and invite you to do that. Um, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. John, thanks much. God bless. Thanks, Kevin. Yep. Love you. Yep.